suppose I'm going to say it's been quite a process um, reflecting on this um, talk. And, um, you know, just in terms of the process, you know, kind of around power love and um, power mode and love mode, then a lot of things have actually arisen for me. And um, in some ways, you know, the focus on um, thinking about the talk has um, actually given rise to um, needing or wanting to acknowledge lots of unskillful behaviour. And so um, I have um, engaged in quite a bit of confession um, with the Buddha, um, not necessarily you know, with the um, kind of chapter members. So there's something um, you know, kind of here that I just want to um, kind of share is that it can actually focus the mind. And if we can actually be present with whatever we're engaged with, then um, there can be fruits of that, okay? So um, that will probably be a main um, um, aspect of the talk tonight. Um, it's going to take three parts. And um, the first part is just a, back, um, a bit of an introduction and um, background. And particularly kind of around the three poisons or the five poisons and also known as the six poisons in terms of mental states. So that just give them a background and a context and just linking that to aspects of um, our conditionings, whatever they may be. Then um, I'll talk a little bit about power. And, um, you know, kind of what is power? And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but, um, you know, just let the, you know, the word power just sort of drop into your body a bit. And, you know, just notice what you're experiencing. Okay. And we'll come back to that, um, you know, kind of when we get to that section of the talk. And um, the third part will be, well, we're all coming um, as um, individuals with a range of conditionings um, to the Sangha through the doors of the centre initially, if not this one, another one. And um, what are the implications um, um, in terms of um, how we relate to ourselves and to one another? Um, if we take um, you know, the model or way of seeing an approach of power mode and love mode. So that's going to be the three sections of the talk. So um, the Buddha said at the time he was alive, when you see me, you see the Dharma. When you see the Dharma, you see me. Now obviously the Buddha isn't alive. Um, now, and I'm just sort of wondering when you just let again let that drop in, and bring the Buddha to mind. What do you see? What do you experience? And just take a couple of moments. One of the things is, do we see reality? Do we experience reality? What you know, is reality? And we know from the Buddha's teaching, um, conditioned co-production, interpenetration, and non-duality. And that's quite... If we look at Avadra, then there's a lot of symbolism with Vajra. And we could actually experience this as a ground of conditioning. And these two aspects, both as either nirvana and samsara, 
also as non-duality. So this is very conceptual. And and, uh, this is what I want to explore a bit more. So the mind that sees reality is illumined and sees everything without obstruction. And yet we know from the Buddhist teaching that we have clouded minds, obstructed mental states, and these are referred to as the three poisons of ignorance, hatred or aversion, and craving. In a lot of the scriptures, this is extended, and particularly extended you know, sort of with the Mahayana school, extended to pride and also jealousy. So these are afflicted mental states. So again, we can start to sort of think about when we look at ourselves in a mirror, what do we see? What do we experience? And if we were to look at each other, what do we see? Do we see aspects of ourselves in the other? Or do we start projecting onto one another, which is based a lot, you know, kind of through our own afflicted mental states? So this kind of feels quite strong. And it is quite, um, it is strong. And again, we can start to sort of look at, using this as a symbol, the Vajra, Helen. On one side, we can see self, and on the other side, other. And here, Sangharachita has often talked about, not so much in the Vajra, but if we look at this, as a knot, a knot of separation, representing ignorance. Yeah? We could also um, kind of see it as this um, other, and that other may be a person, maybe material wealth or status, and this is ourself, and there's craving. There's craving we want to attach. So we don't see the person, we don't see things for what it is. We experience instead a pleasure, a worldly pleasure, which is often momentarily satisfactory. So again, the Buddha teaches us that there is suffering and that, you know, kind of worldly gain can only give temporary satisfaction. But there's a pull, isn't there? There's a pull. You know, so there is an engagement. You know, there is an engagement towards others. There is an engagement in the world. So the third, aversion or hatred is um, again be self and other but this time there's a separation and the pull is going opposite ways and you know then there's not an engagement and that can go from being very subtle just a sort of turning away but it also means that we start not being connected and that could be with aspects of ourself so that could be body and mind, so we may be very heady people, live in our heads, and not connected 
with our body, our sensations, our feelings. And we can you know, sort of block that off. It could be with other people. So we start avoiding. And so it's particularly these aspects that um, um, I want to kind of explore tonight. And from a, um, a, a Buddhist perspective, and um, Shantideva in particular, in the Bodhi Charitavara, um, you know, talked about aversion, anger, hatred as um, being the most um, um, afflicted mental state. So even you know, before craving. So it's not that they're all separate, but because it's pulling us away, pulling us away from experience, then aversion, anger, hatred are those mental states that it's important to attend to. wanted to um, just read a quote from um, Jung. And uh, this is from a book, um, an edited book, um, Nature, Technology and the Modern Life. And this separation, if we think about um, you know, kind of human evolution... And, the, um, and we think about um, the times of the Buddha, 2000, over 2,500 years ago, from moving from tribal peoples to urban and cities, moving away from nature to human-made um, environments and technology. There's also a separation from ourselves as human and what we call na- nature. And a lot of um, you know, um, people actually talk that actually, as humans, we have a lost, and we, um, what we you know kind of repressed or suppressed is a huge part of our generational human evolutionary history. And so Carl Jung talks about: at times, I feel as if I am spread out over the landscape and inside things and am myself living in every tree, in the splashing of the waves, in the clouds, and the animals that come and go, in the procession of seasons. There is nothing with which I am not linked. So for me, that just resonates so much with Pratichit Samatpada, conditioned co-production, dependent origination. So when I asked you the question, if you look at yourself, what do you experience? If you look at another person, what do you experience? Do you experience, do I experience myself in that other person? And again, from the Vajra, bringing out the Vajra, um, sometimes, you know, the five-spoke Vajra can be about the elements, reminding us, you know, about the elephant, um, elephant, Elements for the elements. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so that kind of slow history turning. <laughs> so earth, water, fire, air, and space. And that is what all living organisms, all, all existence is comprised of. Yeah, and that's our connection. 
our connection with one another, with buildings, with nature, with with, um, animals. And yet we don't see that often. Instead, it's a separation. We can also think about, you know, how we've separated um, from the production of food. We can also think about, um, you know, just how we are and what we choose to kind of dress in. Um, that whatever we do choose, because we are always consuming, that's part of the in kind of existence, is are we honouring? Are we honouring the elements? Are we honouring the people who have actually contributed to creating, you know, this that I wear? <coughs> So again, you know, the Vajra, just going back to this, um, you know, again the symbolism is that um, seeing truth, the diamond thunderbolt, seeing truth cuts through wrong views, cuts through our projections um, and our emotional states. And there's something about when we do experience truth, see truth, which goes beyond start, you know, the kind of intellectual um, understanding, then there's something about a readiness, a readiness to both let go, but also to let in, to be receptive to the Dharma, to truth. Now, of course, you know, as we grow up, we are all part of a whole range of conditionings, from family conditionings, from social um, conditionings, cultural conditionings. And we, you know, our views about ourselves are informed and influenced by the messages that we've received. And um, the worldly winds, the eight worldly winds, gain and loss, pleasure, pain, praise and blame, status and disgrace. That on one pole, might say gain, we, we move towards that which we gain, and we try to avoid loss. We move towards pleasure, and we try to avoid pain. And one of the, the kind of, what we're invited as we engage with the Dharma is to start to hold a mirror up to ourselves to start to have the courage, the openness, to start to get to know ourselves. And it's not straightforward or easy, and yet it is also in the context of the support, potentially of Sangha. So again, there's a, um, um, a saying that... The thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care. Let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings.
So that's just initially kind of the first section, just starting to you know, kind of highlight you know, the, po- the poisons, and I will return to the poisons. And I think there is an invitation about, well, what have we, in psychological terms, we can sort of talk about, what have we internalised in terms of the messages about how we come to view ourselves? Some of us, you know, have come from very difficult um, backgrounds and circumstances. And, um, you know, it's almost, you know, kind of as a hook, we can hook into um, um, thoughts and narratives and stories that were unlovable, that were no good. Some of us can um, have had more favourable circumstances. And I know, Sila Bodhi, you talked um, last um, week, and ostensibly it can seem that you have a very good life, objectively, materially, but also there's a longing, you know, there can be an emptiness. So there's also something that's very human, you know, which is about a longing for something. Um, And that can occur, you know, kind of at different um, things, which is something more than. And there's something about, you know, how do we find ways to honour that, you know, that honour that longing that isn't around restricting ourselves. Because if the thought becomes the deed, becomes the habit, it's not only towards others, it can be towards self as well. And as we start to identify and look at our thoughts and our narratives and our stories, it can be really painful to start to recognise that we're starting to limit ourselves um, as well as potentially limiting other people. Okay. So Bantu said, I'm just looking for the quote, um, that one, one sort of aspect, particularly practicing in Taratna, Buddhist community or the order or the context, is that we could um, uh, um, look and use a model which is looking at power mode and what, you know, kind of how that manifests and um, the love mode. So when I asked you, what is the word power? Yeah, how does that sit with you? How does that resonate for you? How do people feel? What comes up? Is it a comfortable violence? Exposure? Oh, explosion. Fear? Strength? Manipulation. So there's um, you know, kind of quite a lot of negative um, connotations associated, you know, kind of with the word. Well, the kind of definition of power is an ability, a capacity, a faculty, a potential, a capability, an energy. So, and power, quite often we sort of think about power being held, static, you know, and we might um, identify power as held in a person, in a role, in an institution. Um, Another way to look at power is power is dynamic. Nobody owns power. It's relational. And yet, quite often, we project power onto others. And what would it mean 
if we start to relate to power as an energy, as dynamic, as changing, as relational, rather than as a possession of something or someone. Bante described the power mode as power is the capacity to use force or and violence being actual use of that capacity to um, negate a being, another being. And yet, if we think about power as um, an ability, a capacity, a faculty, then power can, if um, motivated or underpinned by skillful mental states, actually be what we could call a noble path a noble way, rather than an ignoble or a negative force. So one of the things is about you know, thinking about um, you know, kind of power, power as dynamic, about as energy, could be just quite helpful to loosen if we have historic negative connotations with the word power. Um, and that's, you know, um, well, I was inviting you just to think about, oh, well, what might be some of the thoughts or the stories we tell about ourselves? Whether they're, you know, they may be about, I'm the kind of person who, I always do, I never do. Whether it may be, I'm confident, that still is restrictive <laughs> and limiting. Um, because it doesn't necessarily open up to, actually, there are times when I'm not confident. <laughs> and so what we can start to protect is a particular um, representation of ourselves. If we have the um, description, I'm unconfident, then the, the invitation is, well, is that always true? Is that the truth? Or is it reflective on particular circumstances and conditions? So we can limit ourselves in you know, restrictive ways in, in whether it's coming from um, what we might call a negative or what we might call a skillful state. And again, the invitation from dharmic practice is to grow and develop. You know, that we're born not to simply enjoy worldly pleasures, but we're born to grow in wisdom and compassion. And whereas power, which is driven by negative or unskillful mental states, is a negation of being, whether that's our being or another's being, love, it could be transformed, transmuted, purified into the love mode through dharmic practice. So love being a solidarity with life, a cherishing of life. And um, I came across a saying um, which said, everything that needs care is living. Everything that needs care is living. And again, we can start, we can, you know, if we just reflect on that, we can start to think about, well, actually, um, I could drop a cup and it's broken. And it starts to um, kind of just soften the edges you know, between what's animate and what's inanimate. 
So it can start to help us to think about, well, what is it we're caring about? What is it that we want to cherish? Do we want to cherish life? And we are part of life, humans, and everything else is part of life. So as we come into connection and start to deepen our practice and commitment through dharmic practice, we are asked to bring a mirror to ourselves, to bring what's unconscious into consciousness through meditation, through the practice of meditation, through the practice of um, ethics and wisdom. So the threefold path, and some of you may also know it as the eightfold path. And that's through expression of our going for refuge to the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And Sangha then becomes a living expression of life. So, again, from a Vajrayana perspective, the, um, the Vajra, you know, again, symbolised a five-spoke Vajra. We could start um, exploring as Akshobhya, Ratnasambhava, um, Amitabha, Amogasiddhi, and Varochna, the five Buddha Mandala. And we could see the five Buddha Mandala, the wisdoms, compassionate action. And on the other side, we could see the poisons, the poisons of ignorance, of anger, aversion, hatred, of craving, of pride and jealousy. And we could start to um, consider how we come into connection to um, purify or to use the energy, the energy associated, for example, with anger, which is a strong strong energy, or can be a strong energy, and use it in service of the good, rather than identifying with who made me angry, what made me angry, is we can acknowledge the, you know, the experience and the um, energy. And then it's, you know, from a Vajrayanic perspective, tantric, is, um, well, how do I use that energy? I have a choice now, how to use that energy. And, can, and you know, that can start to loosen. There's also, you know, sort of other um, 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 approaches, you know, which is um, feeling, experiencing anger, you know, which is then to engage with, for example, the metabhavna. So there's lots of techniques and approaches and methods that we have. But one of the, you know, sort of what we're invited to do is start to get to know ourselves better, to come into a deeper relationship with ourselves, with our experiences. And that's a form of honouring and cherishing, more from a love mode than saying, well, this is the way I am, I can't change, I'm always like this, which we can start to um, sort of understand as it's a negation of ourselves. It's a partiality of ourselves. And again, what we're you know, again invited to do is to grow and develop. Okay?
so I want to um, now sort of go and just bring some of those sort of threads into Sangha. Bhante has been very um, clear, you know, that Sangha is not a membership of a club. We are not part of a group. In the highest sort of aspiration, that Sangha is an expression of spiritual practice, of going for refuge. And in that way, we could understand, we could relate to Sangha as being vibrant, alive, and open to feedback. And one of the ways that um, you know, sort of we um, have feedback is to come into communication, come into relationship. And one of the ways we um, kind of do that is not only with each other, but to come into relationship with ourselves. So as we get to know ourselves and, and um, start to grow, is we can then bring more of our true selves. Not the selves that perhaps for many years we've been taking along with us and restricting ourselves, the, you know, the partial selves, the I'm, you know, I'm not worthy, I'm unlovable. And again, in our culture, in our society, you know, we've got very much of um, a competitive you know, um, approach, which separates people. You know, separates people around employed, unemployed, around gender, woman, man, around race, around sexual orientation. Um, I mean, just think about, you know, categories, that duality all the time. And sometimes those become more refined. And we have a lot of push, you know, towards equalities. And yet still, with that equalities, there's comparisons. Comparisons are being made. And there's something around that we need to be aware. We need to be aware of the experience, both of ourselves, what's informed our conditionings, and others as well. So it's not enough to say, you know, gender doesn't exist, inequality doesn't exist in the lived world, I would argue. It's we need to start being curious and start listening and hearing one another. And actually listen to each other's lives, stories and experiences. Rather than what often we can do, in my experience, and um, I'm definitely one person who who does this, hopefully less so now, is just go into self-presentation, just all the time performing our identities. However that might be, however we might experience ourselves. So the question is, well, what's the stories? I wouldn't say there's one story often. What are the stories we hold about ourselves? And then how do we act those out? So we then start solidifying and if we can start you know, coming to connection, realising about the stories and loosening, then again we can be more. And we also, you know, as we kind of um, relate to one another, is also be curious about the other person, about the other context in which we're engaged. You know, quite often we can have a narrow focus and it's about I, me, myself. Um, and, you know, often language, not only, but can be, you know, a marker of that. You know, it can be a really useful, helpful exercise, you know, just to notice, you know, over the next week, how often do you use the word, words, I, me and mine? You know, my house, 
my group, my study group, my sangha. And again, you know, in our culture, we are encouraged to do that, aren't we? You know, we're encouraged to do that. I remember years ago going for um, an interview and um, I was asked, you know, well, what could I bring to this group? And I was talking about past experiences. And I said, and we, because I was part of a team, we created this. And I was stopped after about five minutes. And, they, you know, they just said, you know, Jill, we know what you do. <laughs> Why do you keep using, you know, we and not I? And I said, but I'm not the only one who's contributed to, you know, um, the, you know, sort of um, effects. So again, it just can be quite interesting. What do we attach to, you know, as we go through our week, you know, our daily lives? So, you know, as we come into Sangha, we can start sort of thinking about Sangha as compassion in action. And I've just um, put, you know, behind Avalokiteshra, you know, who's the symbol of our movement. So the importance of keeping inspired, energetic, and energy doesn't always have to be high energy either. It can be more quiet energy. A dynamic and living. And Sangha actually says that the power model, to operate from the power model, is a denial of Sangha. So what I'm suggesting is the power model isn't um, just about violence towards others, but that we're in fact we're engaging in subtle violences towards ourselves as well as others when we start um, restricting what is our potential, what's our possibilities. And it's not always um, easy to discover the truth about ourselves. Um, you know, I came you know, sort of through the doors of um, the centre. I thought I was, on one level, quite a sorted person. And um, you know, people often responded to me as a sorted person. And, um, you know, it's been a, a painful and liberating journey um, to actually come into connection with the stories that I've told myself and then questioning why am I holding on to, you know, sort of accounts such as I'm unlovable. You know, objectively, you know, intellectually I knew that wasn't, isn't true. Lived experience then, you know, I, I couldn't experience that. So, you know, kind of my particular journey, you know, was to go and engage in a lot of body work. You know, I've had therapy at different times over the years um, as well, engaging that, just to learn about myself. Um, and, you know, again, it's starting to think about, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, to engage with something is that you're deficient or lacking as it were, as a person, you're actually moving towards something to grow, to expand. So Sangha can be an expression of the truth and the opportunity as we start to connect with each other to um, experience, well, well what, you know, can we see the truth of ourselves? So it's not about... The way that I approach it, it's not about destroying ego. I've kind of read, and what resonates for me is about it's studying our selfing processes and then coming through ego to connect and to engage for the benefit of others. And of course, what's, um, you know, as we sort of come through, we come through 
met with um, Robin and Sandeep and um, Sophie um, last night, and we were sort of talking about, well, when do we actually experience Sangha? How do we experience Sangha? When I first came through the doors, um, I came to a centre, and I saw it as a centre, and I came for study. I came to a talk. Um, I didn't experience um, myself as part of a Sangha at all. And it took, for me personally, quite a few years, you know, to actually, that actually I'm contributing, I'm co-contributing, I'm co-creating the ex- experience of Sangha, the expression of going for refuge to the Three Jewels. Rather than, and I think for you know, quite a period of time, it was more consumerist for me. And I wanted my needs met. I wanted study to be a particular way. I wanted to be seen and met in a particular way. And when I wasn't, I got irritated, angry. I also um, sometimes very unskillful mental states. I also started criticising others. I held particular projections of order members, certain order members, um, and part because I'd invested a power in them. And slowly, what kind of experience, we've been talking about power as dynamic, is actually I contribute to this, or this body, this embodied mind contributes to the experience. So um, what um, we might have to do in terms of holding the mirror is sort of look at, am I a person who seeks praise? How do I respond to praise? Do I shrivel? Do I grow? Do I hook onto it? What about blame? How do I respond to blame? Is it blame or is it strong feedback? Are we open and receptive to feedback? Um, and this can intensify. I mean, talking with different people and part of my own journey, it can intensify as we, as we um, engage and deepen our practice. So part of the process within the Chiratna context is that we come through the doors and we might attend some classes, um, you know, drop-ins, um, introductory classes. And then there may come a stage where we um, then um, ask to become a mitra. And we're asked aren't we, about um, um, the five precepts, you know, kind of precepts and commitment. We then can ask for ordination. And then we may start creating um, um, coolers around us. We then can enter the order and have a, um, in that process, also private preceptor, public preceptor. We also then can um, be asked to become a private preceptor. Um, and then we can um, also um, become a public um, preceptor. And all of these different points can heighten our experience, our engagement with Sangha. So meetings and coolers, teachings and study groups, leading classes, seeing people leading classes, supporting um, classes, seeing other people supporting classes, volunteering at the centre, seeing people having jobs at the centre, and um, attending GFR groups, chapters, and we can also 
more formally ask um, to have um, Kalyana Mitras as well, Kalyana Mitras, spiritual friends. And these are all contexts and conditions in which we start coming into connection with each other. And Bhante again says that the Dharmic life is not an easy life, that we need to risk. We need to risk bringing ourselves and we also need to risk being humiliated. That's very strong, you know, to be kind of humiliated, you know, to feel the experience of humiliated. But the question is, well, what is it? <laughs> what is being humiliated? Um, I, I have, I've experienced humiliation um, at uh, different times when I've wanted to um, engage um, with a particular task or process at the centre, and I've experienced other people being asked, and not me. And then there, there comes a, a thing of that, well, you're not ready. And it's, you know, my conditions <laughs> just sort of come through, and it's like, what do you mean I'm not ready? I'm skilled in this, I'm skilled in that, in my worldly world. <laughs> um, what do you mean? And, um, you know, so that sort of sense of I'm bringing the worldly world into the spiritual world. And what I'm trying to do, what I've, at times I've recognised is I'm trying to be in the Sangha as I was in the worldly world. And I'm just, you know, um, trying to um, transfer one context for another without necessarily any deep change or reflections on, well, what, what, is, what is this? And um, again, you know, if we think about um, the, um, you know, the three poisons, well, if we're engaged with dharmic practice, well, why should we expect anything different? That when, you know, why should we expect that everything's going to be cosy, smooth, and we can just keep repeating, reenacting how we were in the worldly world? And yet, at the same time, we've come in from the worldly world, <laughs> as it were, because there's been some dissatisfaction. But sometimes we can engage, you know, um, with, at the centre and with each other, um, just driven by our own preferences. We want to engage on our own terms. And if we can't have it on our own terms, we'll disengage in some way. And that might be temporarily or for longer. So, you know, there's lots of ways that we... Um, can um, do this, you know, projecting onto um, kind of others. And again, you know, I think there's a risk sometimes, you know, that we can see that um, some of the processes here, you know, um, with Mit you know, so with the system of Mitra, asking for ordination, order member, public and private, you know, preceptors, it's as if there's a particular hierarchy. And in the worldly world, how we experience those differences and changes are, is that we're often tempted, isn't it, to invest a power, a particular kind of power or authority in those positions. And I think one of the things you know, we might need to sort of um, just ask ourselves is, well, do we, do we then react against that? And are we projecting in the same ways? And the same ways, you know, if we are Mitra, um, um, training for ordination order member are we holding up a mirror and being aware of actually very subtly we may be experiencing a particular status associated with those roles 
So again, it's not just, you know, it's all of us, you know, um, it's important to hold up that mirror and find ways to hold up the mirror, but from compassion um, for each other. So are we curious about ourselves? Are we curious about um, other people's experiences? And thinking about, do we truly experience, believe, see that Sangha is an expression of the spiritual life? And also the context. Do we associate Sangha, for example, with this building? Or do we experience Sangha as beyond? So we could also start looking at, well, how do we engage with one another? In what ways? When we do meet, do we meet and talk um, in scripted ways? Niceties? Or do we also engage, so not only, but do we also engage with conversation, explorations, which can help each other grow? When we come into the centre, do we, um, you know, the centre could be seen as a symbol of the cherishing of the Dharma, the nurturing of the Dharma. So when we come into the centre, do we come into the centre as users? Do we notice you know, for example, you know, if um, there are you know, sort of dead candles or dead flowers, um, or do we see that as, well, that's not my job because I don't work at the centre. So we can start to see, you know, sort of how we may then start fixing identities again, that people who work at the centre are responsible. And yet we are part of an expression, so as part of an expression of, of um, Sangha, the health of the Sangha, is also the building or each other's homes or each other's health and welfare are also expressions of the health of spiritual practice, of which Sangha is an aspect. And just to, coming up sort of to finally... Just thinking about that, um, we talk about practice. When we come in, well, my experience of coming in was um, when I came into the centre, was that there was a lot of en- I had a lot of energy and curiosity, and I was very open. As um, I um, sort of deepened my practice, um, I also experienced um, impatience as well and impatience um, with myself, with others. And particularly for anger and ill will, you know, which is about separating, is that um, others may say things, but as we come to understand that we ourselves are um, influenced um, from a whole range of conditionings, which will go back generations and generations, so are others. So if we are acting from um, um, a defiled mental state, a deluded mind, or so are others. And uh, Shanti Deva, you know, in the Bodhi Charitavatara, Bodhi <laughs> um, you know, sort of talks about, well, how can you blame an individual if they are the product of conditionings? 
So there isn't a particular individual. There's a you know sort of context and circumstances for that. So you know key um, key spiritual um, qualities or positive mental states to um, which are, are helpful are patience, forbearance, and tolerance. Patience with ourselves and others. Tolerance for ourselves and others. And forbearance of others and ourselves. And again, we can struggle with this sometimes. And um, if we do experience ill will, hatred, or sort of um, just a moving away, moving away from ourselves or from um, others, is, is there someone in the Sangha that we can talk with? And that can be you know, someone who you experience has qualities that you, know, you may you know, aspire to, someone you feel safe enough with, you have enough confidence or trust with. Or it may be that you don't know <laughs> quite how you feel about the person and you are prepared to give a risk. To just talk about, share, and just open up to another perspective. And this is the beauty of Sangha, you know, that we you know, are so many who, and you know, we have confidence that we're aspiring in the ways that we can to grow and develop, to be the best that we can. And it's a journey, and we become that journey, and we express that journey. And so you know, there is a thing of, can you take a risk, even if it's a small risk? And if, if you experience a hit against a wall, can you take another small step with someone? And I think that's um, as much as I want to say. I think there is more, but um, I think I'll call it um, a halt there. Because you know, if there's any questions, then I'm happy to to respond to those. Thank you.